We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Again, we're going to cover some of the same material, but we're going to a different angle with this. Uh, while you're turning there, Genesis chapter 3, I've, I've told you this, uh, but Genesis chapter 3 is absolutely critical uh, for your Christianity. So if you want to understand what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got to start in Genesis. I'm not saying that every gospel presentation has to start in Genesis, but the ideas here uh, help affirm and show us why the gospel is so important. And so in Genesis uh, chapter 1, we, uh, we, I'm, I'm going to go from the top down and uh, read through uh, much of this and uh, just recap what we talked about this last week. I'm trying to, um, trying to get through chapter 3 today. We'll see how that goes. And so uh, in verse 25 of chapter 2, it said, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God's design for marriage is that husband and wife would come together, these two image bearers. One's a leader, one's a helper, one's the head, one's the, um, uh, the, the helper. And, um, and, uh, and, and as a result, what takes place is this, is that they come together in marriage. God performs the first wedding, and they're naked, and they're unashamed. There is no shame involved in what's going on here. And so what we read in chapter 3, verse 1, was this, that the, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that, uh, that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And so what takes place here is that Eve kind of falls into the trap that all of us fall into, which we said last week, and I want to repeat it for you, that three things take place here uh, when we sin. And the first thing is that we isolate ourselves. We don't trust anyone. We isolate from God and community, and we decide for ourselves. We say, you know what? Forget, forget church. Forget, the God, for, uh, forget God. Forget the word of God. And I'm, I'm going to isolate myself, and I'm going to come up with my own plan. I'm going I'm to decide for myself. The second thing that happens is that we question what kind of God would make this beautiful tree and then tell me not to eat of it? What kind of God would create this relationship that I really want to be in, but then tell me not to be in that? What kind of God would, would, uh, would put these things out there for me and then, and then tell me I shouldn't engage in that? And so we begin to make up our own story. We, we begin to question God, just like Satan. Did, did God really say, did God actually say, is this what he really wants? I mean, it, does he really know what he's doing? And the third thing was this, is that we define for ourselves what is good and right and true. This whole idea of knowing good and evil is an idiom for defining for ourselves what is true and good. And so we, we define for ourselves what is true and good. And ultimately what we do is we substitute ourselves for God. Instead of God being the one who, uh, who is our head, who is our lead, who tells us what's up, instead of looking to the word of God, now we substitute ourselves for God and we say, you know what, I want to be God in this situation. 
And so what takes place is this, is that the thing begins to crumble because they uh, have moral agency and they decide that they are not going to do what God has asked them to do, which is not to t uh, eat of this tree. And so uh, what we see here is God's narrative says this. This is a dangerous tree. Don't eat it. It will kill you. But then there's Satan's narrative, which is, it's a good tree. You should eat it. It will make you like God. And ultimately, there's a promise built in here. That God says, this is a test. If you eat of this tree, I will kill you and all of humanity. If you obey, I will give you and all of humanity eternal life. So here, here's the promise. This is, this is what's happening here. Is that Are we going to believe God's narrative or are we going to believe Satan's narrative? And this is what always happens in our world. This is what's always taking place. Is that so many times people are coming up with their own narrative. They try to contort the scriptures, make the scriptures say something else. If you've got something that you want to do, <coughs> if you've got something that you want to take part in, if you have a relationship that, you, that you've heard is wrong, that, you, that, you, that, that people in the church and that, that you've read in the Word of God is wrong, and yet you still want to engage with that, you can define for yourself, hey, it's, it's fine with me. And there's people who call themselves believers, and there's people who write books, and there's people who, who uh, they just go on their own. They define for themselves what is good and right and true. That's a recap from last week a little bit. And, of course, we spent a lot of time talking to husbands or future husbands today because you are the leaders of your home not to be domineering but you're to be somebody who is the leader in your home you're the lead repenter if you will you're the leader in so many capacities and your wife is waiting for you to lead and the ditch that your marriage is in or that your future marriage gets into is oftentimes because the husband refuses to lead and so if, if you're a guy here today and you're having marital difficulty, I want to implore you to go back and listen to last, last week's sermon and then take it to heart. Because I've seen too many men that come to me and say, it's my wife's fault, she's doing this, she's, she's, she's uh, messing up our marriage, and the truth is that you led your marriage there. Or you will lead your marriage there. And every guy does it. We all do it. We, we don't understand what it looks like to lead. Every time I talk to somebody who's uh, about to get married, a... a, a um, premarital counseling or, or what have you, or even after people get married. They're often asking me, you know, what does it look like to lead? And oftentimes it's, it's, it's like, just keep going and I'll show you what to do. Just, keep, just get, take a few more steps and I'll show you what you're doing wrong. And we'll, we'll, we'll find out what this looks like. It's hard to figure out, but it's very important. It says this in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? We'll stop right there for a second. What is God's response? What is God's response to our failure to walk with him? What's God's response when we 
decide to define for ourselves what is good and right and true? What is God's response when we question, why would you make this tree and tell me not to eat of it? What is God's response when we isolate ourselves? And ultimately, what is God's response when we try to hide? When we try to cover ourselves with these fig leaves. And what are the fig leaves? The fig leaves are the things that we're trying to use to cover over our shame. Shame is ultimately a picture of what all of us feel on some level or another. It may be the sin that was done to us or it may be the sin that we've committed. But all of us have, have committed sin and all of us have sinned against others. But this shame that we carry around in us is ultimately a feeling and a sense that things are not the way that they should be in me. The shame is I am not living up to a standard. And our culture will tell you all day long that it's, it's, this, it's this cultural conditioning from Christianity that has said that this is wrong. If we just say it enough times and if we believe it enough times, it'll be okay. But it's not just those big ticket items that we think about that in, culturally or politically speaking. It's not just those things that we're talking about. Because many of us are being like, yep, that's right, our culture is doing this. But the truth is that I do this. The truth is that you do this. That we experience shame from the things that we do. That we experience uh, this internal shame. That we're, we're not where we should be. And oftentimes we, we have this sense of, man, I, I don't measure up in some way. I'm not attractive enough. I haven't worked hard enough. I don't have the house that I should. I don't have the car that I should. I don't have the relationship that I should. I, I'm, I, I haven't made it into these places. And so instead of uh, going along with God, instead of believing God, instead of allowing Him to define, we isolate ourselves and we question God and we define for ourselves and we say, okay, this is the way that I'm going to go and we create more shame in our life and then we try to patch ourselves with all the things, all the things, such as if I'm not attractive enough, I try to look at all the attractive people and wish that I was like them, and I try to dress like them, and I, try to, uh, and I follow them on, on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. If I'm not attractive enough, I, I want to believe that I'm really attractive, so I engage in pornography. If, I, if I'm not attractive enough, I, I might exert myself so much in my work. I, I, I put so much into my work, and, I, and so I'm, I'm uh, or my, my workout, I should say. Working out constantly, constantly, constantly. And it's just fig leaves. Or perhaps it's that I just don't feel successful enough. I have this shame that I'm carrying around because I look at this world and I don't measure up. Instead of allowing God to define what is success, I look at our world and I allow our, our world, my friends, my community to define what success is. And so I try to patch myself up with these fig leaves by overworking I try to patch myself up by trying to get ahead a little bit, maybe cheating a little bit. And maybe I try to patch myself up with just being a very uh, good person, uh, priding myself in my character. That's another way that we can patch ourselves up with these frivolous leaves that we try to cover ourselves with. We try to cover our shame. We try to make ourselves into something that we're not. And it's really, it's really just a facade. It's nothing. I don't know if you've ever thought to yourself, I can see right through this person. 
I can see exactly what they're after. I can see what they want. What they really want is this, and this, their life, their stuff, their things, their family is just a facade. I can see right through it. And maybe you walk around in life yourself and you say, I feel like people see right through my fig leaves. And why shouldn't, shouldn't they? They're fig leaves. It's kind of drafty. Kind of does, it kind of doesn't stay in position. We try to clothe ourselves. See, Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed, but then when they sinned, now they're dealing with incredible shame. And they hide themselves. And the shame drives them, and it drives them, and it drives them. It drives them in their life. Folks, we are driven in life by shame. You may be at church today simply because of shame. If I just go to church enough, then I, I will, I'll get rid of the sense of shame. And church, for you, has become a fig leaf. It's just covering something. It's not about relationship with God and God's people. It's about covering yourself. It's about covering your shame. This shame drives us. It is what our world is dealing with. It is why there is so much fighting and anger that happens in our political system and on, and on social media. It is why people are so angry with one another. It is why. It's because we are driven by shame. This is the fundamental issue with all of humanity is that every single one of us is driven by the shame of our sin. Every single one of us is driven by that shame. And the more we walk in lockstep with that shame, the further away from God we walk. And we keep walking, and we keep walking, and we keep walking. And the question is, what is it going to take? It's going to take this God. So how does God respond to our shame? Because we could say this, we could say, you know, you may be dealing with some type of really obvious sin like pornography. You may be dealing with some type of, you know, somewhat concealed sin by, by being overly concerned about how attractive you are or overworking or things like that. But how does God respond to this? What does God say about it as we're trying to patch up ourselves with these fig leaves? Well, the first thing that you have to see in God's response is that God pursues. God pursues Adam and Eve. It says, the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what are we talking about? We're talking about Yahweh Elohim, this God. He's walking in the garden. And there's many commentators who look at this and they say that this is speaking about what God has done in the past. This is his relationship with these people. This is the way that it was supposed to be. We're supposed to be walking around with God in a garden. We're, this, is, this is what it looks like. And undoubtedly, they had, they had had many walks in the garden together. But this is saying, like, God, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows what's going on. He knows what's taking place. He knows where Adam and Eve are. And he comes out and he begins to walk. And he begins to look for. And it's kind of like this game, I think, where, you know, you have one of your, your little kiddos and you're playing. If you have little kiddos, I know that our youngest, Finley, oftentimes, she, when she wants to play hide and go seek, she doesn't hide very well. 
right? It's kind of, where's Finley? She's like standing in a corner. You're like, I can't see her. You know, where's she at? Kind of a deal. You almost wonder if that's not what God is doing right here. But God is walking in the garden in, in the cool of the day, and he is pursuing. So God is a pursuing God. God comes to you. God is walking. It's, it's not one of these things where it's like, I, I, I just want to get back in God's good graces. If I just do enough, if I, just, if I cover myself up enough with these fig leaves, if I just act like I have it all together, then I'll be covered up and I won't have any more shame. And then when I don't have any more shame, then I'll come to God. No, God comes to you in the state that you're in right now. He comes to you with all of your shame, all of your sexual exploits. Everything that you've ever been involved with, everything that you stole, every lie that you've told, every bit of pride in your Christian upbringing where you didn't really do much, but yet you're dead and lifeless as a believer today because you just have no way of even understanding what you need because you're resting in your own pride. That God, he pursues you. He's walking in the garden looking for you. He's pursuing you. He's coming after you. He's walking towards you. So the first thing is that God pursues. The second thing is that God calls and he says, where are you? We talked last week about how God says this to our men, but it's not just to our men, to our husbands. He's saying it to all of it, all of us as well. And he's saying, where are you today? This isn't spatial, as my theology professor Gary Bashir says, it's not spatial, it's relational. Where are you in relation to me? Where are we in relationship? Tell me where we're at. What's he doing? He's saying, won't you confess? Won't you just say what's true? Won't you confess what's going on in your life? And he's saying, where are you? Where are you? What's going on in your life? What's taking place? How come there's this distance between us? Because I'm coming for you. I'm pursuing you. And God is calling to you. And he's saying, I want relationship with you. What is God's response to your sin, to your shame, to your lies, to your cheating, to your pride, to your anger? God pursues you and then God calls you. And he's calling you right now. And he's saying, where are you? And look at Adam's response. It's not, I ate and it was wrong. All right, God, the gig is up. He told us not to eat the tree. We ate the tree. I'm sorry. It's, 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 it's not that. It's not that at all. It's, I heard you in the garden. That's the context of the situation. I heard you in the garden. This is the situation. This is why I ran. This is why I covered myself up. This is why I have all this, this shame. And it's a little bit like saying this. Yeah, but you don't know my situation. God defines what's good and right and true. We go against that. And we say, but I had to. You don't know my situation. This is Adam's response. God's calling. And Adam responds defensively. It's not I ate and it was wrong. It's, but you don't know my situation. I heard you in the garden, and it says this. That's the context. The second thing is, is this, and I was afraid. He has this, this, this fear. 
this fear of this God. And why shouldn't he? He's the all-powerful Yahweh, Elohim. He's the God of the universe. He's the one who created him. God gave him a firm rule. (coughs) And yet, he's fearful. He's fearful. And it's what we do. We get afraid. And so our our culture's answer to this a lot of times is to fabricate a God that I don't have to be afraid of. If God is light and fluffy and inconsequential, then I don't have to worry about whether that God is going to judge me. So we write books, we misinterpret scripture, we do all these things, and we say, you know, it's not that bad. Or sometimes we just make things up uh, here as a church. Get further and fa- further away from the scripture, just get in the hang of things, and just kind of go with the flow. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. I've, I've kind of heard it all before. I don't really need to read the word. I don't need to be in the word. I don't need to have accountability. I don't need to be in community. Or you might, you might come to this point where you say, you know, I don't even need the church. I can just, you know, you know watch podcast or watch a vodcast and, what, you know, watch a church. I can, I can watch a video. I can, I can be a part of that in that way. But the truth is what's taking place is that there's an emotion there, and it's fear. And so we try to avoid that fear by making up a God in our own image. We substitute ourselves for God. We become God. We substitute ourselves. The third thing that happens there is he says, because I was naked... I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. This is his identity. God, if you you knew my situation, if you understood the fear that I feel, and then you would know why I had to do what I did, and you would see that my true identity is the fact that I'm naked. And that nakedness is the source of my shame, and so... I, I have to make up a story that says it's okay. I've got, I've got to be defensive about my sin. I've got to cover over myself with these silly fig leaves. I've got to do all this stuff. And then if, I, if, if that still doesn't work, then I just create an identity where it just says, I don't need to be shameful about my sin. I'm just going to announce my sin. And this is the, the stuff that happens all the time. The husband wakes up one day and says, you know what? I'm gone. And you know what? You know what happens after that? Oftentimes, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go do my own thing. Well, why don't you believe in God? Because you want to define for yourself what is good and right and true. You want to substitute yourself for God. You want to substitute yourself for God because your identity is now found in this new relationship that you found. But that's just an extreme example of this. Our identity is found in our addictions. Our identity is found in our work oftentimes. Our identity is found in, in the relationship that we desire. Our identity is found in the way that we're patching ourselves up and trying to make ourselves look good and trying to cover over our own sins, trying to cover up our nakedness, trying to cover up our shame. This is now my new identity. I've created a facade. It's a new identity of who I am. And you need to accept me for who I am. 
But Adam is making the excuses, and the excuses are, you don't know my situation. I, you know, I've got this fear, and so I had to do this because I was naked. That's my identity. And the worldly advice says this, find your identity, your deepest meaning in anything except for God. As long as you don't find your identity in God, we're fine with you. As long as you don't come out and say what is true and right and good, we will tolerate you. As long as, it, as we agree with it, as long as we are the moral lawgivers, as long as it agrees with who we are, we, our culture has substituted itself for God over and over and over again. So what's God's response to that? What's God's response to us trying to cover and hide? What's God's response to us being defensive? Instead of saying, I, I ate and it was wrong, we make all these excuses. How does God respond? God confronts our identity statement. God confronts your identity statement. He comes right for it. And he says, I mean, look at all the things that he said. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. He, he doesn't say, uh, you shouldn't be afraid of me when I'm in the garden. Uh, don't, don't be afraid of me. I'm really a nice person. I'm, I'm really a nice God. I, uh, I only killed some of the Canaanites. Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm really a nice God, you know, whatever. He goes for the identity statement. And he says, Adam, who told you that you were naked? And he's saying this to you today. Who is telling you that your sin is your identity? Who is telling you that you must always carry that? And you must always bear the scars of your deviance, of the things that you did, of the way that you're acting. Who is telling you that your identity is in that? Who told you that you were naked? God goes after. God confronts. God pursues. He calls. And then he confronts. And what does he confront? He confronts your facade of an identity that you have made with fig leaves to cover your shame, to cover yourself, to clothe yourself. God comes after your identity statement. What is your identity statement? What are you saying to yourself right now? What are you covering over? What is the shame that you sense in your life? What do you feel right now? God's coming after your identity statement. God's coming after what you believe your identity is. So the fourth thing is this, is that God invites confession. Does God not know what Adam did? Is, is God somehow so ridiculous or so unwise that he is not omniscient? Is that what's going on? No, God is completely omniscient. There's this horrific theological viewpoint that some of you have heard of, you've read about, and, and, and things of this nature, especially if you're in college right now. It's called open theism. It suggests that God does not know what's going to happen. It's absurd. It's completely absurd. Let's talk if you, someone's teaching you that. God does know where Adam is relationally. God does know what Adam did. God does know all of these things. What Adam doesn't know or doesn't believe that is that 
God knows. And so what does God do? God invites confession. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God is inviting you and me to confess. God is inviting us into relationship. And, the, and he's inviting your confession. He's saying, have you done the one thing that I told you not to do? Have you not walked with me in these ways? Are you substituting yourself for me? Are you trying to cover yourself in your shame? Have you done that thing? God is inviting confession. God is inviting us to bring our sin to him. God is inviting you today to understand actually who he is and to stop hiding and to stop trying to take on another identity and to stop trying to cover yourself over and stop trying to clothe yourself with this ridiculous garb. And he's inviting you into relationship. He's pursuing you. He's calling you. And now he's confronting your identity statement. And he's inviting confession. Have you eaten? And so we look at the rest of the story. In verse 12, which says this, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam says this, God, you know how women are. Seriously. I mean, first of all, he blames the woman. And then he blames God. The woman that you put here with me, that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And I can't remember if I said this last week, but this is that point. And men oftentimes try to blame their wives for all of the, the difficulty in their marriages, and it lies squarely on them most of the time. 99.9% .9 of the time, it lies squarely on them because they have not led their family out of these things. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve says, the devil made me do it. He's the one that caused this. No one is taking responsibility. Adam says, it's Eve and you, by the way, God, because I wouldn't have been doing that if that woman wasn't here. I married the wrong person. You gave me the wrong person. It's your fault. Eve, it's, it's, it's Satan. I don't know what came over me. I was possessed. All of a sudden, I was eating this fruit, and I was like, what? This is crazy. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, what's he doing? He's beginning judgment. God judges. That should have been one of my other points. It's not, but it should have been. God judges. He begins with judgment. And he says, because you have done this to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There are so many different theories on exactly what did the snake look like before. I have no idea, and no one else does either. All we know is that the snake is the snake today, and it seems like he's like that because of this, but we're not exactly sure. And so he says, this is your judgment. This is what's happening to you. So God, as judge, says that Satan, you're the first one to be held accountable. 
There's an order of judgment here. Satan is ultimately the purveyor of sin. He is the one who is the deceiver. He deceived, he's judged first. But then verse 15 has this really cryptic and weird prophecy that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does that mean? We'll come back to that. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It seems like there was childbirth before, but now childbirth is going to be painful. There was a relationship before, but relationship will be painful. Derek Kidner says this, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and dominate. Instead of this being a, a, a great relationship of cohesiveness and, and two people that just love each other and come together, it becomes this thing where they are uh, desiring and dominating. They're controlling and dominating each other. And this is what happens in, re, in marriage relationships, is that people come together and, and you're both trying to control each other because I, I married you so that you would do this for me. I'm, I married you so that you would be the right kind of person. I married you so that you would do this, and you're not doing it. Your desire shall be for your husband, shall, shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. We don't know exactly what that means entirely. What, what it does mean is this, is that things are going to get difficult because of the curse that they are under. In verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He says to Adam, he says, Work was already a part of your life. It was already a part of what, of what was going on with you. Now it's just going to get difficult. Now it's just it's going to get more difficult. There's going to be thorns and thistles. This is the only, it's going to be a difficult subsistence. It's going to be a, a difficult existence to be able to survive. Because you didn't lead, because you listened to the voice of your wife, and this isn't saying like men should never listen to their wives, otherwise they're going to sin. No, it's, it's saying this, that in any situation where somebody is bringing anything that is harmful to your marriage, and you listen to them, you're responsible. When you go against the will of God in your life, because you listen to that other voice, Instead of listening to God, you are defining for yourself what is true and right and good. You are substituting yourself for God. And that's what he says to Adam. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, <coughs> Behold, the man has become... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand 
and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, uh, drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They're kicked out of the garden. Judgment truly takes place. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It sounds like God withholds part of that judgment by not immediately enacting that. But from that moment, death is reigning in their bodies. They can no longer take of the tree of life and live forever. And now they're entering into death. And God's judgment is that they do not have eternal life. This is the state that all of us are in. Because of our shame, because of our nakedness, because of our, our desire to hide ourselves, because we isolate, because we question, because we define what is good and right and true. We live our lives on our terms. We do what we want. And this is God's judgment. He removes them from the garden, and now they have death. What is God's response? Look back at 3.15. It's a prophecy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now what is that saying? It seems cryptic, but break it down here a little bit. Enmity is anger. It's strife. It's between you and the woman. There's going to be difficulty between this snake, this Satan figure, and the woman, between humanity. And it says, and between your offspring, so that is of Satan's offspring, and her offspring. It doesn't say her and Adam's offspring. It says her offspring. That's important because this is written to a patriarchal society. The women are not mentioned often in genealogies. They're not talked about. They're not, they're not, they don't have legal rights oftentimes. The Bible gives the most legal rights to women in that day. So why is this prophecy saying, okay, between her offspring, it's not Adam's offspring, it's not, it's, it's not this, it is her offspring. So who is her and what is her offspring? What is her child? And what is this child going to do? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, a head wound is a mortal wound. God's prophecy is this. He says, the woman is going to have a child. She's going to have offspring, and that child is going to bruise your head. Other translation translations say crush your head he's going to crush your head it's a mortal wound you're going down this is prophesied from the first days of creation he's going to crush the head of satan and you shall bruise his heel and what is that satan is only going to give a flesh wound a bite on the heel. It's not mortal. What this is called is this. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. 
It's the first gospel. It's the first glimmer of hope. It's the first response that we see in grace. I mean, really, all of it is grace. As God pursues, he calls, he confronts, he invites. But then what is this? What is God doing right here? What's he talking about? He's saying there's an offspring that's coming, and he's going to crush your head. That's what's going to take place. Well, then I think there's more foreshadowing here in verse 21, which says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. How does God respond to your shame? How does God respond for you with you trying to patch up an identity out of fig leaves, which is completely silliness? How does God respond when you try to go out on your own and you isolate and you question and you, and you define what is good and right and true? How does God respond to these things? God responds by saying, there's one that's coming. And that one is me. And it is in and through Genesis chapter 315 that we see this first gospel. How is he going to crush the head of Satan? We're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about Mary. She's a daughter of Eve. She has a baby. Not with the help of a husband. But by the power of the Holy Spirit. She is caused to be pregnant. And it is through just this woman, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that she births the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And how is he going to do that? Well, it is, through in, it is through his incarnation. Incarnation means that he comes and he comes in flesh, in carne. Carne asada, meat. I'm serious. That's where we get the word. Don't think about tacos right now. We're talking about Jesus, all right? <laughs> in incarnation. Jesus comes in the flesh. God comes in the flesh through a woman, not through a man. He comes through a woman by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lives perfectly. Lives absolutely perfectly. And what does he do? He's healing the sick. He's making the blind to see. He's forgiving people of their sins. He says to the sinful woman, go and sin no more. What's he doing? He's covering up. He's patching. He's fixing. He's covering their shame. But then he ultimately goes and does this on the cross. He goes to the cross, and he's crucified, dead, gone. And it looks like his head has been crushed. And it looks like that he has lost. every. I've been watching so many action-adventure movies lately. I get in these these funks where I like I, I want to watch The Fugitive constantly and like I all of these you know dumb movies from you know the mid 90s or something and and I don't know what it is but every time it's at the last moment you think he's done he's dead he's not gonna make it 
But then it comes out in the end, and he's like, he's alive, and he's going to kill everybody. It's but Jesus isn't going to do that yet. That's, that's in Revelation. We won't go there today. But, um, but he's alive. He made it. It looks like his head was crushed, but his head wasn't crushed. He goes to the cross, and he, he dies on the cross, but then he's resurrected. And what is it? It's just a flesh wound. Satan bit his heel. But Jesus, in and through that resurrection, he defeats Satan, sin, and death. Satan caused that first sin. Satan came to Eve and said, question God. Define for yourself. Isolate yourself. Satan's held responsible. He's the first one judged. And God comes back, and he sends Jesus, God in the flesh. And Jesus writes every wrong. It looks like he's going to die, but he doesn't die forever. He's resurrected. And he saves the day. And what does he do? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's a sacrifice. It's the first sacrifice. God himself goes and he sacrifices an animal or multiple animals. And he makes clothes for Adam and Eve. He says, would you take off the ridiculous fig leaves? It really looks ridiculous. Like, like what, what were you thinking? No, he clothes them himself. And I don't know what those clothes looked like. I mean, were they skinny jeans? Was it, uh, was it a long flowing robe? I have no idea. But God is the one who makes the clothes. Ladies and gentlemen, our shame drives us to try to cover ourselves over and over and over again. And you can sit and you can be fearful and you can try to create a new identity and you can, and you can try to run and you can try to substitute yourself for God. But here's the truth. God substituted himself for you on the cross. We substitute ourselves for God in the garden. God substitutes himself for us on the cross. And it is in and through that that you get new clothes, that you're clothed in righteousness. And all of that stuff that you think about, some of you are paralyzed by shame. You've been trying to cover it for so long. And so what, what's, what's going to be different about you when you receive the grace of God? Through Jesus, when you realize that he's the one, who, he substitutes himself. How does God respond? He dies and then comes back to life in order to clothe you. So what does it look like for you? It means this. When you receive Jesus Christ by faith, when you look at his death on the cross and you say, that is God who went to the cross and he died for my shame. You no longer have to hide. You don't have to try to be covering things up. You can live in community, and you can be open about your sin. I'm not saying that every opportunity is the right opportunity to announce everything that you've ever done, but to some degree or another, inappropriate areas, you will be open about your sin. You'll be, you'll be open about where you've been. 
Instead of trying to cover yourself up with more work and more work and more work, all you, you get to allow your nakedness, in a sense, to be seen because you've been clothed in righteousness by Christ. God himself made your clothes. You no longer have to cover yourself up. You no longer have to hide. You no longer have to deal with your shame. And now you can just be open with it. And you don't have to be this frantic-paced person who's trying to serve God and do more for God and do more for God. But now you get to rest in the grace of God because God's response to you is that he dies for you. How does God respond to our sin? He dies. How does God respond to us trying to substitute ourselves for him? He substitutes himself for us. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, my prayer this morning is that the folks that are in here today that are, that are wrestling with shame and guilt, Lord, I, I fear that many of us don't even know the level of shame and guilt that we deal with. The shame and guilt of not measuring up, Lord. I think all of us are challenged by, by that. And so, Lord, I'm praying that we'd be able to look to you and we'd stop hiding and be honest about where, we're, where our shortcomings are, where our, our sin is at, where we've, where we've violated who you are. And, Lord, may we look to you as the only one who can make things right. Lord, may we look to you as the only one who can, who can fix things, as the only one who can clothe us. And Lord, may we desire that from you. Lord, there's many in here that don't even desire that. Their, their heart is not penetrated by, by this sermon. So Lord, I'm praying for conviction. Lord, I'm not, I'm not wishing anything bad on their life. But Lord, I'm praying that you would do what's necessary to bring them to you. Lord, I'm praying that they would, that they would surrender. Lord, that they would confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord, that they would confess that they have violated your law. That they've defined for themselves what is true and good. And Lord, that they would say to you that they, that they want to live your way. They want you to define by your word what is right and good. Lord, may we do that this morning. May we look to your gospel this morning and, and see it as, uh, as good, as merciful, as gracious. It's in your name we pray. Amen.